Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. You're listening to Radio Rounds, a talk show created and hosted by physicians in training, where today's stories are told by tomorrow's doctors. Coming up on today's episode, Radio Rounds director and co-founder Dr. Lakshman Swamy sits down with Dr. Harlan Crumholz, director of the Yale Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation. Harlan offers a clear call to arms for medical trainees everywhere to lead the way in solving problems like overtreatment and poor access to care that have plagued our profession for years. What we have to do is say, you know, this is a moment to seize. You know, people are really interested in trying to raise the value in the healthcare system to make sure that we're personalizing our recommendations, that we are standardizing our approach in some ways, but in other ways, making sure that we retain the variation that derives from the patient's values and preferences, who they are individually, and, and the technology is going to help us a lot. So it's an exciting time to be in medicine. What we need to do is, is start generating a lot of ideas about how things can be different. We have to let go of the things of the past that really aren't helping us, aren't serving us well. More from our conversation with Dr. Harlan Crumholz right now on Radio Rounds. Welcome to Radio Rounds, everyone. I'm Dr. John Corker. We hear again this week from Radio Rounds host Lakshman Swamy, as he had the chance to interview Dr. Harlan Crumholz, director of the Yale Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation, at the recent Lown Institute Conference in San Diego. Harlan is a cardiologist and a leader in the fields of health services research and health policy. Today, Harlan challenges young medical trainees to take action to come up with solutions to the problems of overtreatment and lack of access to care. According to Crumholz, quote, in some ways, our best hope to reveal our follies lies with those new to the field. It is your fresh eyes, unbridled enthusiasm, optimism about what is possible, and commitment to the highest ideals of the profession that can reveal what those who have longer tenure in medicine may have trouble discerning, end quote. And now, Dr. Harlan Crumholz. Welcome to Radio Rounds, everyone. I'm Lakshman Swamy, and I'm very excited to be sitting across the table from Dr. Harlan Crumholz, a cardiologist at Yale, but also the director for CORE, the Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation at Yale. Uh, Dr. Crumholz, Harlan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks very much. It's great to be here. Well, you know, we're so excited to be to have you on air and to, to talk to you. Um, you know, we know our listeners want to hear from you. Tell us a little bit, you know, we're, we're here in, in San Diego at the uh, Lown Institute Conference. Um, if we could take a step back and just let me ask the question of why, why, are, why am I talking to you here at the Lown Institute? Well, I know that's a good question. Why are you talking to me at the Lown Institute? You know, we're here together at a, at a gathering, a place where there could be a conversation about how medicine can be better. And I gave a talk yesterday that was, uh, I, you know, I think tried to get people stimulated to think about how, how they can constructively contribute to making medicine better. I think that was the most, uh, you know, most important word that I heard you say was constructively, because one of the, uh, one of the things that a lot of people in medicine and patients, everyone is frustrated with the system. I think a lot of people are frustrated with the lack of access, the lack of quality, the, inc- the high costs everywhere. And what, what really struck me about your talk was that you really said, you know, anyone can complain, but 
how do we come up with solutions? Yeah, we need to be solution-oriented. And, and first of all, let's take a step back from that even. I mean, some of our dissatisfaction comes from our rising expectations. I mean, there were, there were errors where people weren't really asking questions. They weren't looking closely at the quality care that was being delivered. We weren't looking to see whether or not patients were um, being provided the kind of services and, and deriving the kind of benefits that they could if all of the medical knowledge, to the best extent possible, had been personalized for their needs and, and they had been put in a position to have the best possible uh, outcomes. And now we're looking carefully. I mean, our, our sophistication has increased. Our expectations are rising. And w- we have to avoid a sense of, of negativity about this. What we have to do is say, you know, this is a moment to seize. You know, people are really um, interested in trying to raise the value in the healthcare system to make sure that we're personalizing our recommendations, that we are standardizing our approach in some ways, but in other ways, making sure that we retain the variation that derives from the patient's values and preferences, who they are individually, and and the technology is going to help us a lot. So it's an exciting time to be in medicine. What we need to do is, is start generating a lot of ideas about how things can be different. We have to let go of the things of the past that really aren't helping us, aren't serving us well. Can you give me an example of something like that? Well, if you, if you walk on any hospital ward today, I mean, I think you see medicine practice largely the way it was in the 1950s. I mean, you know, we walk down, we're, we're just so inefficient. I mean, we have these teams. I mean, everyone's bored. We're not really leveraging information. We're, we're kind of, um, we're, we're, we're staring at computers, and we have a computers on our waist, but we're not optimally using them. And so, you know, I think, you know, we've inherited a system where doctors need to be able to say things off the top of their head. That's led to when we're trying to risk stratify patients to not give docs more than about five variables to think about. And we give them simple scores like here. One, take Chad's VAST score, for example. Chad's VAST 2, we're, we're asking people to memorize yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, add up score. Do they reach a certain threshold? Should they be anticoagulated? That's crazy. It's insane. I mean, first of all, we should be making use of a lot more variables. They, those variables should have a lot greater richness than yes, no, they have a history of hypertension. Mm -hmm. Because within each of those categories, there's a lot of heterogeneity. And then we shouldn't be imposing, hey, you tripped over this threshold, so you should be anticoagulated. But we should be generating tools that help us sit down with people, help them weigh the trade-offs and understand what they really need and want, and then match uh, the recommendations to who they are personally. I mean, we're not doing that at all. I mean, we're, we're really have these heuristics in our head. We're we're really being asked to practice in very much a similar way that it has always been practiced. And I think we're, we're primed for a different era now, not one that's going to make the doctor less important, but really make the connection between technology, knowledge, data, and the patient as a person uh, more, more real. The, the, the art of medicine is going to be that translation. You know, I think that's, that's the, again, what I'm hearing is that we have, this is, first of all, such an exciting time to be in medicine, I agree. And that's part of the reason we started the show is because we, we believe that so deeply. But, but even beyond that, it's, it's, what I'm hearing you say is that we have more and more ability to leverage the, like you said, the computer at our, on our, on our, in our coat pocket, right? But at the same time, the focus is on individualized patients, you know, the person in front of us and how we can't just apply scores to them kind of blindly. Um, I think, I think that's a, that, that can be a difficult conversation for trainees to have with patients. Do you, do you have a suggestion for how you know, an internal medicine resident or a student who is thinking about the, the CHADS VAST2 score and, and, and speaking with a patient can kind of put that, those two things, this, this very big population data and this person in front of me together? Yeah, I think this is 
both the opportunity and the challenge for a trainee. I mean, the trainee is, is set, is embedded in a larger system and ultimately doesn't have the final responsibility for the patient is, is learning. And they can't jump ahead of the attending physician. They can't jump ahead of the person who's going to really be in charge of the patient's care. Now, in their own clinics, they get a little more autonomy, but still uh, there's some issues there. And I think it's, you know, what I really would love for the trainees to do is to start generating ideas about how can we communicate better. You know, I've, I've felt for a long time that we haven't leveraged the fields of cognitive psychology and, and actually marketing and communication. And, you know, we need to come up with ways that we can communicate with people. And I think it's a cop-out to say that, uh, gee, you know, this stuff's just way too complicated for patients. Mm-hmm. They can't possibly understand it all. Because, you know, people make complex decisions every day, and, and there are ways that we can communicate sort of the key aspects of what the trade-offs are for individuals, what they're likely to gain, what's the magnitude of that benefit, and what's it going to cost them. And the cost is not just out-of-pocket dollar cost, but the burden of taking a pill every day, for example, or or of um, of the whatever we may consider minor side effects that may be actually major side effects for mm-hmm. them. And and you know, finding space to have those conversations and thinking about ways that can do it. I think trainees are in the best possible position because they're not yet been totally socialized <laughs> so that, you know, they're, they're st- one foot in and one foot out really of, of medicine and they still know what it's like to be a layperson. And so remembering the fear, the anxiety, the difficulty grappling with the new concepts and words, you know, may put them in a better position to help come up with ideas about how we do this more effectively. And and then I just urge trainees, write about this, throw out those ideas, social media or longer essay pieces or, you know, make make proposals, do pitches, like say, wh- where should we be going? Because the way we're doing now, it's just untenable. I mean, short visits with no tools, no standardization around things like informed consent or mm-hmm. decision making. We're missing this critical aspect of where, where we need to go. I think that you're right, the, w- the direction in which we're going, you know, as a trainee, I think it's it's so difficult because so much, uh, you know, as a believer in the benefits of standardization, you know, there, there's so many places where standardizing aspects of care can be very important, but standardizing the patient doesn't really work. And yet, I feel like sometimes that's what we're asked to do. Right. So this is a, a, exactly where the thing can go wrong, right? Because the standardization we're asking for, for example, in informed consent, I'm saying it should be standardized, that it should be standard practice that people in the process of informed consent explain what the options are, what the benefits are, what the risks are, what the performance of the team that's going to do a procedure, for example, is, and what the out-of-pocket costs should be. So those five things should be covered. That should be standard, right? But how they're covered should vary depending on the patient. And the patient really may need different I mean, each patient may need a different approach to how you cover the same information, but we should be having tools, things that help us. And the other thing is doctors shouldn't be making up numbers. I mean, we should be having underlying tools that help Mm -hmm. us know, okay, here is what your risk is. Now, how we communicate that may depend on the patient. And then you're making a very important point about the patient themselves. The standardization doesn't mean we do the same thing for everyone. What the standardization means is that on our side, there's a standard information that's, that's somehow embedded in however the vehicle of communication is, but that we give patients permission to make decisions that may not be the decisions we would make. That is, that there's a range of acceptable options. Uh, just because one option on average produces better uh, outcomes doesn't mean it's best for that patient in front of us mm-hmm. because it may depend on how they value the different outcomes. And so 
we have to give permission for people. In the way I say it is that two people presented with the same exact information may choose different courses and both be right, both be right for themselves based on what they care about. And you know, it's most evident for people with end of life decisions where someone may decide, you know, my choice is not to have more treatment, but. But it's true in almost every decision. And I think too often in medicine, we make it seem to the patients like there's only one course. When there's not, there's many courses. And, and we just need to figure out how to do this in the context of a healthcare system where we're being squeezed for time. But again, you know, when I look at the way we practice, there's so much time being wasted, so much documentation. I mean, we spend too, far too little time actually talking to patients and far too much time shuffling, you know, paper or, you know, typing on the keyboard or doing things that, that – uh, you know, aren't really strengthening our relationship with patients. You know, you touched on the topic of informed consent. This is something that, as a as a resident, I do pretty much every day. And, you know, I remember even in the first week of my intern year, I'm sitting down with patients and kind of giving them this informed consent. And I, I found it striking, though, that, that the, these five elements that you're talking about are not always present, right, in informed consent. I think that's, that's, that's a problem. I think it's difficult because when I'm, you know, I, I imagine my, my interns as they're kind of talking to patients, they don't have even all of that information, right? They don't have the performance of the team. Um, they, they, we can only explain things in, you know, for example, when I'm consenting someone for a blood transfusion. Uh, the, the benefits are, are pretty great if you need it acutely. Um, I'm still talking to you because I want to make sure you're on the same page. But at the same time, it's very hard for me to articulate what are the options here. Well, this is a problem, I think, because what we haven't done is create the space where we're sitting down with the patient and saying, look, uh, uh, for this moment, we're going to consider which path is best for you. I would say 99% of the time we're getting informed consent. We, we already know what we want them to do. And I say it like that because that's kind of how we walk in. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I need to get consent for you because you're getting this transfusion. Or, look, you're going to the cath lab, and a, a necessary thing to do before you get in that door is for you to sign this that consent. But But we haven't. So but at that point, there's this implicit, uh, you know, idea that the, that the decision's already been made, right? And this is just, we're going through the, the mm-hmm. you know, emotions for this. But the issue really should be, so when is that time? I mean, when have we said time out? Let's really decide what this next step is for you. Mm-hmm. Let's go over this. And that's the time, that's the informed consent time, right? This is what this time is. And you say to the patient, look, there are several ways this can go. I'm not going to say any one right way. Um, I, if you ask my opinion, I'll tell you which way if I were in your position, but that's because of my values and what I care about. But let's talk about this and make that decision. And too often, I think trainees are taught informed consent is just go in there and, you know, you bulldoze through the, these facts, which are gone by so fast no one can possibly absorb them. Sure. And you're basically, it's getting to the goal. The goal is signature and go because right. someone's going to call you and yell at you if the patient doesn't have the informed <laughs> consent. And, and that, that doesn't honor the decision. It doesn't honor the process. And I think it misaligns often what patients end up getting and what they would have wanted if they'd known the facts. And one of the things I presented yesterday were some studies that show that patients uh, overestimate the benefits commonly. And so where's that coming from? Maybe it's come from the enthusiasm of the doctors. And so they just assume all these benefits. And it's up to us to make sure that they at least know the real facts about what can be expected and know that there's some uncertainty about what will happen to them because we can't say for sure. And those are things like we don't find a, a, a quiet space to say, here's what we're doing now. We're, right now we're deciding. This is informed mm-hmm. consent. And then if you've done that, yeah, later maybe you can sign the papers and remember the discussion we had. But if you're just rushing in, I mean, it's almost 
I mean, it's the worst kind of teaching for trainees because it's sort of, uh, you know, it's undermining Mm -hmm. the whole notion that there is a choice. You know, one of the things that you mentioned was that patients exaggerate the benefits because possibly of the enthusiasm of the doctors, right? So here's, here's a maybe more difficult question. When you are a trainee, I feel like oftentimes we exaggerate the benefits to ourselves of a lot of treatments that we have to offer. You know, some, in some cases, we know that you know, antibiotics and sepsis, this is going to be good. But that same level of certainty we apply to a great many things. You know, we've been talking about uh, stroke risk with atrial fibrillation. We, we, you know, the, the use of blood thinners, Coumadin, Warfarin, in that, in that case, is something where, on a population level, beneficial. But there's a lot of cost to the patient, as you said, not just financial. The drug is cheap, but you have to get your blood drawn and, and so on and so forth. There's a risk to it. So how is it that a trainee can put these very complicated numbers together to know, to know, you know, for any given treatment, this is the real benefit that, that I might be able to offer you? Yeah, well, first of all, there, you know, there are systematic reviews that give some sense of that benefit. And I said yesterday that when you talk to patients, I think it's important to put them in several different contexts. That is, not just to say this is the relative reduction, but to try to find a way that patients can understand it based on who they are, where you're focusing on the absolute benefit. So if it's a 2% benefit, 2% absolute benefit in the risk of stroke, that people understand that, you know, either whether it's number needed to treat or percent same result or whatever it is that mm-hmm. you do, that people can understand. I, I want to go to even a more important point, because I think the trainees have the opportunity, and this is even more true for medical students, a little bit less for people in residency, but more so than it will be later on, to mm-hmm. actually really get to know the patient. I mean, you know, you will be at, the, at an advantage to anyone on the medical team if you actually invest to get to know the patient. And what do they care about? What do they fear? What do they hope happens? I mean, how are they weighing the idea of uh, hitting their head and having a hemorrhagic stroke mm-hmm. or subdermal hematoma, uh, you know, versus uh, avoiding a stroke. I mean, for some people who come in and say, I- I've seen strokes, it's a fate worse than death. I'd do anything to reduce the risk of stroke. Mm-hmm. Other people fear bleeds more. I mean, the extent to which you can really invest and understand what that person is and help give them permission to make the choice that's best for them will be, you know, what you can do better than anyone because everyone else is rushing around and if you can unround and say, you know, I actually, I, I've talked to this person. I know what's important to them. Let's go in and talk to them, right? You don't need to even represent that, but mm-hmm. that you have made that relationship, I think then puts you also on a track to realize throughout your career that that's, that's where, that, I would say, that's where the money is. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's where the investment should be made because then you can steer through these decisions. Now, you were asking me about the actual facts. I think that's, that's doable. We need to do a better job on that, right? We need to be able to to come up with personalized estimates to a better extent. But to me, again, sometimes people are making small distinctions. Like if it's 2% or it's 4% or it's 6%, I actually think if you're a patient, that sounds pretty similar. Like mm-hmm. to us, that seems like, wow, that's a you know 2x <laughs> difference or 3x difference in risk. That's a huge deal. you know. But if you tell a patient you know, your risk is something like 1 in 20 or you say it's 1 in 17 or it's 1 in 16, I think it sounds about the same to them, you know? Mm-hmm. But so the important thing that really trumps it is like, what do they care about? What are they really trying to avoid? What are they really trying to, to get out of this? And, um, and then trying to customize the decisions based on that. And all of our, the precision with which we're trying to get to these estimates, I think are far beyond the precision which patients can absorb those differences. Mm-hmm. And so what we should be doing is instead of disproportionately 
I mean, I want good data, and I'm working on actually part of our research getting better risk scores and providing this in a better way. I mean, I think it's important, but, but I think that more, even more important is understanding the preferences because those differences should drive it much more than any imprecision in the estimates. Uh, my one point about this is you will know there's all this controversy about the cardiovascular risk scores and the guidelines. Sure. That's because the guidelines artificially made this threshold of 7.5%. It, which is in, also crazy because, you know, so is really a patient who's at 7.6% different than 7.4%. And the differences in these risk scores maybe make a difference in whether it nudges you above that, that it really sure. arbitrary number. But for patients, I don't think it matters, right? They don't, if it's 7%, 10%, 12%, all right. sounds the same to them. And so the real question is, do you, are you the kind of person who would be willing to take a, a pill every day for this cost, for some risk, in order to avoid some future event? And it's about, you know... Mm-hmm. And you sort of ballpark it. It's about this, you know. And you either get a sense from there are some people who are really avid to take pills. They take supplements. They'll do anything. Right, right. And there are other people who say, I hate it. You know, it makes me feel sick, and I don't want to do it. And getting to that is what's so important. And you can only do that by spending time with the patient. And, you, and, the, and trainees, I think that's your – you don't have the experience. You don't have all the knowledge of your more senior people. But you can have the trump card of knowing the patient better than anyone. And, again, it's not adversarial, but it's just the – it's it's that is the teaching you need now is to say where's that is where the real value in medicine is. So let's take a step back. You know, I recently had the opportunity to attend the um, Telluride Patient Safety Roundtable in Colorado, and one of the features of that uh, that conference, that event, that w- those workshops was that we were able to watch some videos, videos put together by Lucian Leap um, and and uh, a couple other doctors and patients about medical errors. And in those videos, um, you know, I heard, I heard, I saw you, I saw you talk a lot about uh, why it's important essentially to, you know, again, informed consent, you know, in the, in the case of some of these, you know, really tragic cases where patients, children got hurt because of a lack of informed consent. So, so taking a step back, looking at the bigger picture about um, when we see things go wrong in medicine, how we, you know, how can we convey that to trainees, and and how did you find yourself talking about that? Well, this is one of the most important things that we do, which is to be honest with our patients. You know, and I think for a long time, again, there was this culture, and still pervades a lot of medicine that, you know, we have to protect them, we have to look out for them, where we have to be. You know, there's this paternalism about, uh, you know, shielding them from bad news or even mistakes because that may, you know, get them to be. Uh, uncertain about the care and you know i can think of nothing more important than really conveying to patients that we are their advocates we are on their side we will be honest with them we'll tell them the truth and uh things aren't perfect and if things go wrong we'll talk about that too the fact that we have to talk out loud about that should give us added determination to avoid it the next time Mm -hmm. you know when you don't talk about these things and you almost it's almost like you try to dismiss it there's certain cognitive dissonance you don't want to even face that truth. Sure. And the fact that we as healthcare professionals need to talk out loud with the people that were affected, um, you know, I think is an important lesson for ourselves. You know, it, it helps put us in the mindset and, and, and to fully absorb what the impact of it was and to redouble our efforts to try to create the systems that make these things either impossible or much less likely. And that's, again, getting away from a blame culture like you are a bad person, but more that these things can happen, and particularly in some systems, they're going to happen more often than in other systems. And what I mean by the systems are, you know, the way in which healthcare is configured, the kind of support you get, the, the, 
you know, you should be in many places where certain kinds of mistakes are just impossible. And that will save you. I mean, not only will it save patients, but it'll save you from being in a position where you would have potentially harmed someone, even by with a good intention. So I was very interested to get involved in that kind of work, too, because, you know, it's all part and parcel of this about how we're going to go to medicine and what kind, how we're going to build strong relationships and how we're going to build stronger systems that help us be better doctors. You know, it's, it's just this is another aspect in which I think so many of us who follow your work are really impressed with the fact that you take very complicated um, scenarios, very complicated concepts, huge amounts of data, big data, and turn it into something that we can digest and use with an individual patient. Well, so that's, I would guess, I mean, for people who are listening and thinking about their own careers, what I tried to find was this sweet spot between really strong science and its application and the translation of it. And I guess I'm always trying to think about, like, what's this like from the patient perspective? You know, can I see through the patient's eyes? Who's going to benefit from this? What's the value of this information? And and in the end of the day, you know, it's not about uh, the elegance of the scientific technique if, in the end of the day, people can't benefit from it. So it's trying to find that place where you can generate new knowledge that actually has meaning and impact. And, and uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm just constantly trying to think about, like, how does that work? And, you know, successful sometimes, sometimes not as successful, but I'm always driving towards that. Yeah, it's just so inspirational for us to hear from you and to know that this is something that as students, as, as trainees, we can get involved in not only by being academic, but also just by spending more time with patients. Yeah, I think in the end, you know, it's about knowing people and, and caring about them that uh, is going to ensure that medicine is going to continue to improve. Uh, Harlan, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Rounds. This has just been a great experience for us. Great. Thank you so much. That was Radio Rounds' Lakshman Swamy with Dr. Harlan Crumholz, Director of the Yale Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation. Check out our website for a link to the very inspirational article that Harlan wrote as an editor for the journal Circulation, entitled, quote, A Note to My Younger Colleagues, Be Brave. As we've mentioned before, the Lown Institute is dedicated to transforming healthcare systems and improving the health of communities. They focus on the concept of, quote, right care, end quote, in an era where both impaired access to care and over-treatment are equally destructive issues at play when caring for us during our times of greatest need. Check them out at launinstitute.org. Join us on Radio Rounds in the coming weeks for more great stories from all areas of medicine. In the meantime, remember that you can download podcasts of all past episodes. Just search the iTunes store for Radio Rounds or visit www.radiorounds.org. You can also contact our team via email, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. All of that information at radiorounds.org. Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. Sponsored by the American Medical Association. Providing group disability and life insurance to students and residents through participating educational institutions. Visit us at medplusadvantage.com. AMA Insurance is pleased to introduce an individual disability insurance plan called Essentials for MedPlus Advantage participants. Through this plan, eligible graduating medical students have a special one-time opportunity to apply for high-quality individual disability insurance with no intrusive or time-consuming medical exams, only a few basic questions, and with discounted premiums. Apply now as the enrollment period ends soon. Of course, please remember that the views and opinions expressed on Radio Rounds are not representative of the views and opinions of the partners of Radio Rounds. 
Thanks so much for joining us, everyone, and have a great week. For our entire staff here at Radio Rounds, I'm John Corker, and one day, I'll be your doctor.